do you remember learning how to walk? Maybe not. Uh, how, how did you learn? How did you learn how to walk? You know, for a long time, you watched other people doing it. And then it started with some crawling and then standing. And finally, you took that risky first step, right? And probably a tumble forward. And before long, it was one foot in front of the other. And this is a skill that you have today. Once upon a time, you didn't know how to walk, but now you do, and you do so without hardly thinking about it, right? Or similarly, how did you learn how to talk? Pretty much the same process, right? First, you listened to other people, and then came the little goo-goos and gagas, and finally that babble turns into actual words, and you are driving your parents crazy with one question after another, probably. That's usually what comes next. And again, this is a skill that once upon a time you didn't have. There was a time when you didn't know how to speak. But now you can speak and you can read without thinking about it too much at all. Now, walking and talking are everyday things, right? Pretty common. But what about not just walking, but running a marathon? Right? Is there anyone here who's done that? Are there any marathon runners? We have, we have one. Half marathon, maybe. We got, got some people. Okay. So, so that takes practice, right? Like you don't just get up and run a marathon one day. That takes practice. You have to train. You have to build your strength and your capacity. Or what about not just talking, but singing or, or playing an instrument of some kind? Are there any musicians? Right? We got a few musicians here. Again, that takes practice. Right? I took piano lessons as a kid, and I probably have spent hours and hours of my life practicing scales. Right? Just do that over and over again. And as monotonous as that was, it taught me my way around the piano keys so that the work of practicing the piano could turn into the joy of playing the piano, right? So all of these things, from something as common as walking and talking to something as complicated as running a marathon or playing an instrument, all of these things take practice, right? You learn how to walk by actually taking that first step. You learned how to talk by babbling and bringing out those first words, You learn how to run a marathon by building up endurance, and you learn an instrument by playing those scales over and over again. All of these things are learned not just by studying, but by doing, by practicing, right? Well, the same thing is true in our life with God. We learn by practicing. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Verse 7, Paul wrote to Timothy, train yourself in godliness. Godliness is something that we can train in, right? Or in 2 Peter 3, verse 18, Peter ends his letter with this blessing. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so just like the natural growth of learning to walk and talk. Grace is also something that we can grow in. 
And we grow by practicing. So the past week and a half, we've been in this church season called Lent. And if you were here last week, we talked about how that is just the old English word for springtime. And so just like the grass and the flowers in spring, Lent is a spiritual season for growth and renewal, pressing forward towards the new life of Easter and the resurrection. But growth comes through practice. So we've been challenging each other throughout the season to these certain practices. If you've seen out in the lobby, maybe you grabbed one of these sheets of paper, uh, practices of prayer and fasting, of giving and service. And in our passage today, we see some instructions about how to practice for our growth in God. And we'll see some specific instructions about these particular practices, prayer, fasting, giving, and service. And this comes from the center of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 6, once more, let's hear it, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Truly, I say, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. And let's read it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gracious words and for giving us these practices to grow in godliness. I pray that as we reflect on these words, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, this passage gets super practical. But before we dive into it, I want to remind us all of where we began last week. Okay, so if you were here last week, we looked at Jesus' baptism, where we, where he heard the Father speak over him, you are my beloved son, before heading out into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting. And we looked at this story, and we said that the same is true for all of us, that before we do anything, we begin as beloved. And just think about natural life for a moment as well, right? Before we learn to walk or talk, we were born. Well, our spiritual birth begins deeply immersed in the love of God. And any growth that occurs as a result of that, any practicing that we do, is not to earn that love, but rather rooted in that love resulting from that love. And that is exactly what Jesus teaches us here. In this passage, Jesus talks about two different kinds of practicing. One of them is rooted in the love of God, and the other one is not. And he pleads with us to do the kind of practice that is rooted in love, because that's where life and growth are. But he does have a warning for the other kind of practice, right? And that's where this begins. In verse 1, Jesus says, beware of, your right, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then throughout the passage, he contrasts the way that the hypocrites practice with the way that we ought to practice. The hypocrites uh, give to be praised by others, they pray to be seen by others, and they fast to be noticed by others. And in each of these cases, Jesus says, truly, they have received their reward. Now, as we think about practicing, one principle of practicing is that you get out of it what you put into it. For example, marathoners, right? There's a big difference between running for speed and running for distance. It takes a very different kind of practice to run a race than it does to run a marathon. Someone may practice to run quickly and be able to win a race, but then whenever a marathon runner goes, they can just keep running. Someone who runs for speed is going to run out of steam, but a marathon runner can keep on going. Or the same thing with the example of playing piano, right? There's the person who can actually play the piano, and then there's also the person who can just play chopsticks, right? And we all know that person. Maybe you are that person who plays chopsticks, and it's a great party trick, 
right? People love it. They'll sing along. Maybe someone will sit down and play the duet part with you. But beyond that, you don't really play the piano. It takes learning those scales to really know. So with practice, you get out of it what you put into it. And this is essentially what Jesus is saying here about the hypocrites. All that they put into their practices is a desire for attention from others. And Jesus says that's exactly what they get out of it. Truly, they have received their reward. The great spiritual writer and philosopher Dallas Willard put it this way. He says, when we do good deeds to be seen by human beings, that's because what we are looking for is something that comes from human beings. God responds to our expectations accordingly. When we want human approval and esteem and do what we do for the sake of it, God courteously stands aside because by our wish, it does not concern him. Or he says of the hypocrites, they are seen by other people. And that's the reward that they wanted. And they got it. Because they had not involved God in what they were doing, he does not intrude on their little project. So when our spiritual life is about being seen by others, about pleasing others, about having the most genius and insightful thing to say in Bible class or, do, or during dwelling time, or about sounding great when we sing, right? We may actually succeed at some of these things and become really good at them. But when we do, Jesus says that that's all the reward that we'll receive. And for some people, that reward might just be enough. And if it is, great. But most of us know that the approval of other people is a really fleeting thing. Most of us know that ache for something more. Because you see, no matter how many claps or bravos that we get for putting on a good show, and that's literally what the word hypocrite means. It's the Greek word for a stage actor who wore masks in the theater and put on a show for others, playing other characters other than themselves, right? No matter how many claps or bravos we get for putting on a show, there eventually comes a time when the curtain comes down and the lights go out and we're left with just ourself. And it's in that moment that Jesus invites us into more. He says that our spiritual life goes beyond all the show of church services, of Bible studies, of whatever religious activity it might be. True spiritual life is found in the secret place. And this is really good news. Because that means that whenever you feel utterly alone, God is there with you. That means that when your faith is crushed by doubt, and you begin to wonder if all of this God stuff is just a bunch of groupthink, God is there with you. Really. Some people may scoff at prayer and say, oh, you know, that, that doesn't get past the ceiling. But Jesus' point is that it doesn't have to. Go into your room. 
shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. If a tree falls in the forest but no one was there to hear it, does it make a sound? Yes, because God was there to hear it. And God was there to hear the tree fall. He is also there to hear your secret pleas in the dark. True spiritual life is found in the secret place. And this is really good news. And this isn't just good news because we know that we're not alone. It's also good news for another reason. Because you see, some people do practice their righteousness to be seen by others. But there are a lot of people who practice righteousness because they are seen by others. Do you know what I mean? We feel the pressure to do a bunch of righteous stuff because, well, what will they think if I don't? And our spiritual life becomes not so much about showing off as it is about people-pleasing. We follow certain religious rules that others pressure us into. But people-pleasing and showing off are both cut from the same cloth. Both assume that our value and our worth come from what other people think. Both say that we are worthwhile when we've been seen by others or when we measure up to others. But the good news here is that our belovedness is found in the secret place. There's no pressure to perform. There's no pressure to say some impressive prayer or to know the right answer or to have an amazing singing voice or whatever it might be. Our worth does not come from others, but from God in the secret place. God's love is not found when we show off or when we measure up, but rather in secret. And it's from this place, born in the love of God, that we begin to learn how to walk and how to talk, how to grow in grace how to train in godliness, or as our passage says, how to practice righteousness. Because you see, it's true that the passage has a warning, but it's a warning about practicing righteousness to be seen by others, not about practicing righteousness at all. The truth is that righteousness does take practice. We've all had a lifetime of training in sin and brokenness, and it's going to take some serious practice to learn righteousness. And the expectation is that we will practice. Did you notice that little pesky word throughout the passage? When. Right? In verse 2, when you give to the needy. In verse 5, it says, when you pray. And yes, in verse 16, it says, when you fast. Not if, but when. Throughout 
this teaching, Jesus assumes that we are going to be practicing these things. So I just want to get really practical for a moment and just talk through some of these things. So first, when you give, right? Now, there's a couple of ways to give. There's planned giving. That's when you plan to set aside some certain amount of money to give. This could be for the work of the church, or this could be supporting some other organization. And this is a great moment to remind you that we are raising money right now for Reach Out so they can extend the shelter for an additional month. All right, so I'm just going to ring that bell real quick. Um, so that's one kind of giving, planned giving. Also, there's spontaneous giving. That's giving that you didn't necessarily plan for, but you're moved to give. And this one's been difficult for me because I live primarily a cashless life. And so it's hard for me to give spontaneously. I don't carry cash with me. I don't really have much reason to, except maybe this. And so there have been times in my life that I have intentionally tried to keep cash on me because I want to be able to give if I'm led to. I want to have something on me to be able to to give if the Spirit moves that way. It's too easy to just say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have any cash, right? And that eventually becomes an excuse and a crutch. And now, some of you may not have the ability to give through money. And that's fine, because we can also give through our time. We can give with service to other people. And again, this is a great little moment to plug that next week we're going to be serving the men at the Reach Out Shelter. And we really need a lot of help for that. Uh, There's sign-up sheets out there if you're interested in that. This is an opportunity to give through service. And all of these things, all of these ways of giving, both with our money and with our time, help to cultivate humility in our hearts. And it trains us against selfishness. And just like playing the piano, it takes a lot of practice before you can give in a way that your right hand doesn't know what your left is doing. But after plenty of scales, you eventually can. And you can give without a second thought. I've got a long way to go before I get there. I don't know about any of you. So next, when you pray. Prayer is a really complex thing, isn't it? And there's whole books that have been written about this, and there's no way that I can do it justice in just the next couple of minutes. So what I want to address is those of you who know that prayer is good and something that you know you ought to be doing or that you should do, but you don't really know what to pray. For a long time in my own life, prayer was just kind of a blank page in front of me. And there's a lot of freedom and a blank page. You know, you can kind of draw whatever you want, write whatever you want. You can pray whatever you want. There's a lot of freedom. But after a while, that blank page began to feel really daunting to me. I would come to pray, and I had no idea what to do. I felt like I was just all out of words, and I didn't know where to go or what to say. And that's when I discovered that prayer doesn't have to start with a blank page. 
look, we, we don't have to come up with all of our own words for prayer. In the passage we just read, Jesus has actually given us words to pray, words to rest in. And this is a great gift. Truly, he knows what we need before we ask it. He has given us words to pray before we've spoken. Another thing that's important about prayer is that it's not just speaking to God, but also listening to God. The essence of prayer is communication, and communication goes both ways. All of this is why I really do love this little prayer book that some of us have been working through throughout this season, because every day includes some scriptures that we're given so we can listen to what God is saying. And then there's some quiet and freedom to pray whatever it is that we're led to. And there's also a written prayer towards the end to guide us whenever we don't quite have the words. And so I want to continue encouraging you, if you don't have one of these, pick one of them up. And if you've missed some days, that's fine. Just just pick it up anyways and, and keep going. Um, I want to encourage you deeper and deeper in prayer during this season. And for those of you who do want to go deeper, again, I'll remind you that uh, this next Saturday, there's going to be a prayer retreat that we're going to have here um, at 10 o'clock. I'm really looking forward to it. There's going to be some time to share together, some time to be alone, and some time to reflect. Um, And this will be an opportunity to go deeper in what it means to pray. So finally, when you fast, and this is the hard one, right? It's the one that everything in our culture kicks and screams against. But I think that the resistance we feel toward it is a sign that we are in deep, deep need of it. You see, our culture tells us that we will be filled through consumption and that we find freedom in limitlessness. But fasting shows us that this is a lie. Fasting shows us that consumption leaves us just as empty as we were before. And that true freedom is found within the proper limits. And that's really what fasting is ultimately about. It's about being free. It's not about quietly suffering, but rather about finding true joy. Dallas Willard again says that when Jesus directs us not to appear distressed and sad when we fast, he's not telling us to mislead the people around us. Instead, he's explaining how we are actually to feel. We really won't be sad. Because our belly is not our God, right? This is in our dwelling passage. Jesus is our God. Fasting is ultimately about freedom. So the question is, what is it that you need to be free from? That's a great thing to fast from during this season. So giving, praying, fasting, 
These are all things that train us in godliness. They're the means by which we grow in God's grace. And our hearts are transformed and made righteous. But they're also more than that. This is the last thing I want to leave you with today. Because the Greek word for righteousness is the same as the Greek word for justice. The two words are miles apart in our English connotation. For us in English, righteousness has to do with personal morality. And justice has to do with social equality. But in Greek, the two are one and the same. Both have to do with things being the way they ought to be. Things being right. Things being just. And so whether that's personal or social, this word has to do with things being the way they're supposed to be. It goes well beyond just me and Jesus. And it envisions a whole society transformed and made new. And this is true throughout the scriptures of this word. So next time you come across the word righteousness in the text, I want you to try something. Try to replace it with the word justice and see just how it might expand the way that you're reading that. Just think about the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. That's a promise that God is going to come and make all things that are not right, right again. There's coming a day when everything will finally be the way it's supposed to be. And look also how it transforms this passage. Because when we give and pray and fast, we're not just practicing righteousness in a personal sense. Rather, we are practicing justice as we envision an entire world transformed by the grace of God. When we give, we're not just practicing righteousness, but justice as we provide for those who are in desperate need. And when we pray, we're not just practicing righteousness, but justice as we bring all things to bear before God who is righteous and just. And when we fast, we're not just practicing righteousness, but justice as we discipline our gluttonous need for consumption. And we learn to live freely within our means. So in this Lenten season of renewal, May we practice righteousness, and as we practice, may our hearts be changed and the world be transformed. Amen.